You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast by Nori, the world's first carbon removal marketplace. Here are your hosts, Ross Kenyon and Christoph Jospay. Hello, welcome to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon here with Christoph Jospay and Paul Gamble. We are in foggy London town, as they say, drinking English breakfast tea. I feel a little out of practice here with the podcast. It's been what, is it a month, five weeks, six weeks since we last recorded. Yeah, we kind of batch these up and then uh, have them produced. You're giving us away. <laughs> I don't think it's that uncommon or unethical. Or you can write to the the podcasting bureau and report us <laughs> for, for unethical <laughs> behavior. Christoph, why don't you tell the audience what we're up to today? As you said, drinking English breakfast tea, mm-hmm. and we're sitting across the table from Mark Stevenson in his very nice kitchen in London. Mark is a reluctant futurist, also an author, and has he referred to himself as a dilettante at one point. And Mark, you're on the Reversing Climate Change podcast, and we like to start with people's story. And you asked us, well, why am I on this? So so maybe you don't know, but I think you do. Yeah, justify so, yourself right now. <laughs> ju- just Justify yourself and take us from the beginning. Do you even care about reversing climate change? Well, yeah, of course, because if we don't, we're all fucked. <laughs> that was your one. You told you you get one. Oh, I get one. I get one fucked. Oh no! I can't, oh no! It's a it's a trap. Starting over, Paul. Kill it. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, this this is that's, our... that's banter. What's the expression you guys have? The old joke: the Archbishop of Banterbury. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, I don't know that at all. Oh, you never heard that? No. Oh, no. Okay. okay. So what was? <laughs> you were you were dropping all the words we told you not to. I was justifying yeah. myself. Yeah. Please, please. We like to start adversarial. You know. Okay. Fight your way out. Who am I? I am a reluctant futurist in that people call me a futurist, but I never called myself a futurist. I am, of course, interested in the future. As Charles Kettering said, my interest is in the future because I'm going to spend the rest of my life there. And as Martin Seligman, the father of positive psychology, says, you know, we shouldn't really be called Homo sapiens, the wise ape. We should be called Homo prospectus, the ape that thinks about the future, because that's pretty much the one thing that distinguishes from every other species is our ability to think about the future. So all of us are futurists. Becoming a professional futurist requires no qualifications. In fact, generally, it means you have to be an old white man who wants to be immortal. Um, what about a young man like Paul? Yeah. Is that, is that okay? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, he's not. He's, he's actually 804. Oh, no. <laughs> it's all the supplements I take. Yeah. Oh, is this like you're like an antediluvian man yeah. over here? Okay. <laughs> Great. A few years ago, I guess 10 or 15 years ago, I decided, was asking myself what I wanted to do with the rest of my life after my band had disappeared into obscurity. And the drummer went to jail and various other things. Mm. And I'd also been a crypto kind of technology geek, sort of, to pay for the guitars. I'd so I was sitting on myself saying, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? And I realized I wanted to do two things. And the first was make people more literate about stuff. You know, it seemed to me that the level of discourse on anything from climate change to the Human Genome Project to gender inequality to the retreat of democracy was pretty crappy and often uninformed. And also I wanted to battle cynicism. I'm a kind of an anti-cynic. You know, cynicism to me is just obedience to the status quo. So mm. I wanted to try and find ways to go, look, there are these problems and there are all these solutions and all this stuff out there. And, you know, let's be pragmatically optimistic about that. But you can't do that unless you're literate about it. And so my first thing I did was become a stand-up comedian to go and talk Very to... Very practical way to go about it. Well, yeah. I did, as you see, most content about these topics is written and performed by geeks for geeks. That's not a criticism because, you know, I'm a geek, right? But it strikes me that I don't care what your background is, you know, I don't care in which room you're sitting, we have sequenced the human genome, climate change is happening, this is important for you. And and I also believe that the more diverse the group that are informed about and involved in battling those things, the better the answers we'll come up with collectively. Because if we just leave it to the, you know, the people who've made the decision so far, which is usually old white rich people, well, guess where we are? You know, so doing stand-up was my way of saying, I'm going to teach myself to talk to everybody. You go into a stand-up club and you're doing a gag about climate change. You know, you've got everybody from the bar staff to the local plumber to the CEO of a, you know, company, you know, whatever. So it's a really good way of teaching yourself communication. So I did that. And then because of that, I got to write a book. And I wrote a book which was a comedy travelogue around the world going, hey, what's happening? Basic primer on climate change. But, you know, rather than talk about climate change, I'd go diving with the president of the Maldives at an underwater cabinet meeting. And rather than talk about, you know, soil carbon, you know, from my desk, I'd go to the Australian outback and meet some cows. And, you know, rather than talk about the human genome, I'd go off to Boston and meet George Church and then I'd have my genome sequence and all that kind of stuff. So it was a comedy travelogue around ideas as well as places. And then people said, wow, you can really communicate this stuff. 
change the way I think? Will you come work with my business? Will you come work with our employees? Will you help us with strategy? And so then slowly I morphed into this futurist guy. And I wrote a second book a few years ago, which is about systems change and how to do it. And that was very popular. I'm writing a third one, The Future of Fairness, just waiting on a big American broadcaster for a TV series, we hope. My life splits into three things. Third of it is research, constant going around the world, trying to find stuff that's cool and is making the world better. The second third is consultancy, advisory work, working with organizations, investors, schools, whoever, and trying to get them to be literate about those questions and then answer them well. The last bit is the public facing stuff, the writing the books, the doing public talks, the bits and bobs of TV, that kind of stuff. And then on top of that, I keep up an artistic practice as well. It's because I can't be a good communicator unless you're also an artist. So I have a play coming out in the UK next year and an album coming out in January. I still do bits of stand-up and write comedy to keep those communications and muscles sort of up to speed. So there are things that you don't do though, right? Uh, so quite, quite a list of... Uh, yeah, hard, hard drugs. Hard drugs? Hard drugs, uh, gay sex. Um, <laughs> not that I have anything against both of those things. It's just not my bag. It's not for you. Yeah. <laughs> it's not your bag. Bits and bobs, not my bag. Yeah. We're, we're in England, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. So you said so much there, and there are many <laughs> stories. We could do the whole podcast on what you just said, but at Maldives underwater meeting, how did it happen? What, what were the circumstances? Well, I wanted to talk about climate change. I thought a really good way to talk about that would be to go to a low-lying island with a really bad emissions problem because that whole economy is pretty much run on tourism. And also the president at the time, the president of the Maldives, was, had committed the nation to becoming carbon neutral. And he was holding an underwater cabinet meeting to bring attention to this, where they were all going to sign a declaration and take it to some big event. And I thought that'd be a good place to go. So I found them up. And the great thing about the Maldives is, you know, the whole population of the Maldives is about 300,000. So it's not like phoning up, you know, the White House going, hey, can I chat to Obama? It's kind of like phoning up Des Moines and saying, you know, can I chat to the, the mayor? <laughs> so it's much easier to get to the president of the Maldives than it is to get to, say, you know, the president of India or Canada. Yeah, I phoned up and I said, uh, yeah, can I come in to be the president? They said, yeah, why don't you come to the underwater cabinet meeting? It'd be really cool. You'll love it. I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and so I ended up there and it was one of the most bizarre experiences of my life, but it was great. What depth were you at? like 10 meters or something like that, you know, because I had to get all the cameras down there. So it was, it was underwater, but it wasn't like dangerously underwater. And, and are you kind of all radioed in or do you just communicate in bubbles? And oh no, well, the actual meeting itself was all done via sign language. I actually went and interviewed the president later at the presidential palace, but I was at the meeting. I was one of only four people that wasn't in the government that was in the water. So it was, it was fairly bizarre. Wow. The only British sign language I know is two fingers. That's all I've got. That's, and that's actually French sign language. Oh, yeah. Is <laughs> Agincourt? Yeah. Yeah, that long? Yeah, okay. <laughs> now, of course, the Maldives are particularly relevant because I think what, the tallest point is less than 10 or 20 feet. It's, yeah. It's sort of a foregone conclusion that the people living in the Maldives will be climate refugees. It depends because they're on an atoll. And the great thing about atolls is because they're kind of based on coral, they can raise with the water. So it depends how fast the water is raising. And in fact... One of the interesting about the Maldives is that the land mass has been known to increase even with the current level of sea rise we have. It's more problematic for New York because New York can go anywhere. It can't raise up. So depending on the speed of the sea level rise depends on whether they go down or up. Is it pretty easy for New York to just build up its seawalls or have some sort of system to take care of that? Or is that... Well, I mean, you know, New York could do that. It's a very expensive way. You know, the cheapest way to solve all these problems is to start dealing with climate change probably now. Uh, rather than deal with it later. You know, it's a bit like a drug addiction. You know, you start off and you spend a small amount on drugs and then you get more and more drugs. And before you know it, yeah, you've lost your wife, your house, your family, and you're going, really, I wish I'd stopped taking drugs earlier. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, that, that's, you know, you, you can go into rehab later and it'll cost you a fortune and you've lost, you know, everything that's precious to you in the meantime, or you can stop now. So I think the cheapest way to deal with climate change, whether you're in New York or the Maldives, is to stop emitting carbon. And we like reversing climate change. That's kind of what we're into and what got us really motivated. Just convenient we're talking about this then. I think it's the, the name of the podcast. Is that right, Paul? That's the most convenient part. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We're throwing around terms. So one of them is adaptation, which is New York building seawalls. Yeah. And the other term is mitigation, which yeah. is deal with the root cause of the problem. And ultimately, that comes down to two things. It's not putting CO2 in the atmosphere and yeah. pulling out the excess CO2. Yep. And if we can get that right, then it's solved. Game over. Let's go solve some other problem. Yeah. But how do you see it, since you have a crystal ball and all, <laughs> how's it going to go down, Mark? Uh, you're talking about his glass eye or uh, what are you mentioning? I, uh, no, you're talking about my testicular surgery, <laughs> I guess. Oh. <laughs> uh, you ought to see my crystal balls banging together. 
Oh, that'd be rude to ask. I, I only think we're going to lose 25% of our podcast listeners from this episode. <laughs> you guys wanted us to interview a comedian. This is what you got. Yeah. You got to deal with it. All the bits we cut out were really funny. <laughs> <laughs> so the chaff is left over. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I don't know how it's going to go. I have no idea. If we carry on the way we're going, it's going to go very, very badly. You know, my job, and I guess your job, is to try and get as much carbon not going into the atmosphere and pull as much back as quickly as possible. And depending on how quickly we bend that curve depends on whether we head for a disaster or a more sustainable world or something in between. So I don't know how it's going to play out. I know that the reason I do what I do is because I believe it's the biggest game in town. And if we don't do something about it, then it's going to be very bad. So what are you going to do with your life? I talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. So the bad news is everything is broken, including the climate. The good news is it's all fixable. It's not like we need any new tools or techniques to do this. You know, all the technology is there, all the talent is there. We're just not organizing ourselves properly at the moment. And the ugly news is, as we are forced to organize ourselves differently and change from extractive economies to regenerative ones, as we move from hierarchies to networks, you know, all that kind of stuff, it's going to be a bit of a bloodbath for business models, for existing ways of doing governance, for lots of money, and that's going to be hard. But you know, my job, I feel, is to make that bloodbath slightly shorter and slightly less painful. And if I manage through my efforts to shorten it by one month, I may have saved a million lives. Yeah, we love the approach that's optimistic. We tend to be pretty optimistic or use the word anti-cynical, yeah. which is quite good. Is this similar to uh, like uh, Matt Ridley's rational optimism? Is it somehow <laughs> different? I know you, the lukewarmism thing maybe isn't your, your bag either. Well, but. I know Matt met a few times. The optimism for me is optimism of ambition and then pragmatism of approach. And quite a lot of what passes for future optimism is don't worry, technology will save us. Mm -hmm. And that's not good enough. So for me, it's much more about having a really bold dream and then working your ass off to go and fix it. But that often means going and talking to people that don't want to hear it. So I spend a lot of my time sitting with investment houses, talking to them or talking to investors of companies. Because if the money doesn't think progressively, if the money doesn't take climate change seriously, if the money prioritizes short-term economic or financial gain over the top of the long-time survival of the species, we're all dead. And that's why we love what we're doing too. We're trying to make it really easy for that signal to be seen so people can make money off of helping to reverse climate change. And yeah. hopefully that draws them into this whole space. And the good news is, and the research is on this, that companies that think about sustainability outperform the market, both in terms of accounting performance and stock market performance. Yeah. And the reason they do that is for two reasons. The first is if you're starting to think about the bigger picture, you're thinking systemically. So guess what? You're an outward-facing organization. You're looking at all sorts of different things rather than your current little silo. Therefore, you're managing yourself better because you're thinking in systems already. And you're worried about strategic risk and how to... How yeah, to... and all that. So, you know, and climate change is a shareholder value risk, for sure. If you don't get that right, people like BlackRock are saying now you have to, you know, which is one of the biggest investment houses in the world, $6 trillion under investment, they're saying, unless you have a climate competent board, we're going to be on, on your ass. A, you're kind of thinking more systemically. And second, all the best talent wants to work for companies that are sustainable. So you start to attract all the best staff. And those two things over the long term mean, guess what? Your company is making more money. There's a third piece too. I guess it's probably more cynical, but consumers reward brands that align with their values. And so if I see a company doing certain things that mm. say, hey, I'm trying to reverse climate change, well, I'm more likely to buy from that brand and it'll make you more money. And so it's- <laughs> That's not cynical. That's incredibly optimistic. Well, sure. But it just means that your underlying motivation is to sort of pull on the chumps like me who are willing to pay more. Yeah, but like, again, I, that's not cynical. <laughs> <laughs> and actually do, doing things sustainably also actually ends up often being cheaper. So if you're a company that thinks about you know sustainability, guess what? You're reducing your water waste, you're reducing your electricity bill. That's actually good for your bottom line too. So that makes a, a perfect amount of sense. Smart businesses get this. And now investment funds, I'm really happy about this because me and lots of other people have been banging on the investors for years, just seen in the last three or four months, three large investment houses launch investment funds where the criteria that they use for investment are, does this investment move the sustainable development goals forward? So that's the investment criteria is, is this SDG friendly? And that's great. you know. And I think that's the thin end of a, a much bigger wedge that's coming. It's all moving that way because people have realized that you know climate change and other things like income inequality are starting to cost serious money. And you know if we don't solve them, we'll have mass civil unrest. I mean, Gaylord Nelson said that great thing, didn't he? The economy as a wholly owned subsidiary is the environment, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. So you, you can short term, you know, get a bit more money. But if long term, you're destroying the underlying operating system of humanity, then there is no market for you to make money from. And the smart guys are getting that now. And I think it's also because we've been talking about climate change and sustainability for 30, 40 years now. 
And there's people getting into positions of power in large organizations that grew up with that sort of awareness. And some of them are, are smart enough and brave enough to battle against the well-funded status quo that they've inherited. I want to throw a wrench in it. Go on then. Okay, maybe my last comment wasn't fully cynical, but I would say, let's take California as an example. California has a cap and trade regime. Everyone says it's going marvelously. It's actually not. And if you look at every cap and trade regime in the world, bar one, they all have gone sideways politically when the allowance cap actually starts to hurt. Mm -hmm. And the real things that companies need to do in order to actually reduce emissions substantially start costing them money. And then they say, no, we don't want to do this. And the position that companies who are trying to do the right thing and think they're doing the right thing is you're actually, how can I put it? You have people doing the right thing for the wrong reasons and they get screwed. Yeah. And similarly, I mean, I like the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. There are 17 of them. United Nations. This is the United Nations. I think Jeff Sachs is... Does he want to take credit for sort of coming up with some of these original thoughts? I, I don't he know. He did the Millennium Villages, right? Was, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. But I mean, you know, you're absolutely right that in the short term, doing the right thing often costs more money. And therefore, your competitors can kind of go, great, well, you go and do the good thing and we'll eat your market because we can sell it, you know, a better margin. We're not going to take that cost. As I say, long term, that doesn't pan out. Short term, it does. Long term, it doesn't. So short term, you can definitely make some more money by being the bad guy, long-term, and there are stacks of research that back this up, you will lose. I, Producer Paul, you desperately. I, well, you know? to what Christoph just said, I think there are some other factors at play, which is that when you look at the cap and trade schemes that have been implemented, they're often only targeting specific industries. So like you look at California, that's mostly say energy, utilities, transportation companies, manufacturing companies, which is not the same thing as what Mark is talking about here, which are oftentimes large global brands that have very complex supply chains and complex operations. I just wonder, I don't know, I'm sort of guessing here, but I wonder if there is a difference between the way that these energy utilities look at investment in more sustainable infrastructure and the idea of a major global multinational brand investing in sustainability, air quotes, as a sort of practice. You know, but there are stacks of companies out there that have been carbon neutral for a long time now. I mean, Microsoft's been carbon neutral since 2012. Right. So make a big noise about it. Yeah. There are 411 companies that have signed up to moving to science-based targets, of which over 100 of them now had their targets ratified saying, this is what you have to do in order to do your bit to do with climate change. You know, and that you can criticize all these things, but we're definitely moving in the right direction. 10 years ago, the idea of even suggesting that would have been considered madness. It's a cultural battle where Doing the right thing becomes so normal that doing the wrong thing becomes a cost. And we have to go through that transition over the next 20 years. I'll give you another example. Is I was talking to a sustainability director at an auto manufacturer about a week ago. I won't name because she said that they actually specifically don't want to advertise that they are carbon neutral because that would go against their brand. <laughs> but they are. <laughs> they care about it. But though. they care deeply yeah. about it and they invest deeply in it, but they don't really see the marketing advantage from that. Wow. I think that's really weak of them. The reasons she gave were interesting. I was impressed at the way that she laid out her case, but I just think it's fascinating and interesting that like, I mean, when we talk about the demand that's going to exist for the carbon removal certificates in our marketplace, it's often driven by corporations wanting to be able to report in their corporate social responsibility reports and so on to like make this public case. It's a PR thing. And so to have a, a company say, yeah, we're doing all this, but we don't really want to talk about it is like, it's turning the whole thing on its head. They're it so is. cool they don't even have to. Yeah. It is an interesting story. I still think if that was them, I mean, I guess it's probably Harley Davidson and I guess they should probably just say, it's cool to be <laughs> carbon neutral. It's as cool as wearing leather and riding a Harley, you know, and if you want to be even cooler and harder, you're a carbon neutral biker. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm picturing this. It doesn't sound very, very hard. I think it's mostly like wealthy old guys who ride around on it. I don't know so, if it would be as good. So speaking of not talking about things or not being allowed to talk about things. Mark, you've signed a number of non-disclosure agreements. So we're not no, I haven't. So let's, let's, break, them. <laughs> let's, let's break them all on the podcast. Let's, let's, I haven't signed anything. What are you talking about? <laughs> let's, talk, let's talk in wide abstractions. We, as a globe, emit 52 billion tons of carbon dioxide equivalent each year. Uh -huh. That needs to go to zero. It actually should go negative by some yeah. point as soon as possible. And yeah. that means lots of things need to scale quickly. Yeah. And we need to do things differently. Wasn't that the name of your book? It was, yeah. Yeah. Nice this is the second book, We Do Things Differently. That's right, yeah. 
Good book. I thought so. We'll put a link, <laughs> an affiliate link in our show notes okay. so we can make some money off of you. Well, yeah. Uh, but the, no, that's, that's, other people, the... <laughs> that's other people are, so you might as well join the party. <laughs> we, we can do that. <laughs> but here's the question. I kind of want to do some hand waves and talk about these sorts of solutions that you see scaling rapidly that have certain attributes that you really like. Well, there's a number. You know, the first thing, you know, if you're talking about not putting stuff into the atmosphere, the renewables are going crazy and people don't realize quite how crazy they're going. They're moving very fast. If you go back and look at every prediction for sort of network technologies, all the predictions are wrong. If you go back and look at the predictions for mobile phones, all the McKinsey's and the KPMG's saying, oh, it'll be 10% growth this year. And it was like 70%. And the next year, oh, it's going to be 12% growth. And it was like 100%. Next year, oh, well, still only be 14%. It's another 100%. <laughs> they just keep getting it wrong. And the same has been happening with solar and wind. People keep saying, oh, well, you know, blah. And the BP just said last week, you know, oh, yeah, we got our solar predictions wrong six years in a row. You know, it's supposed to be an energy can Because it's a cultural thing. They just can't see that stuff and how it works, how it multiplies. The battery technology is getting really cheap and all that kind of stuff. So I'm really happy about that. There is some stuff that I can't talk about in the liquid fuel space that is extraordinarily exciting because if you can replace the existing fuels, which are made out of carbon taken from millions of years ago and replace it with carbon taken from another source that is renewed every day, and I'll only say that much, then you have a very interesting way of doing things because it can fit an existing infrastructure, can very quickly disintermediate the old player. It's still liquid fuel. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're never going to get rid of liquid fuels. We'll always need those. And liquid fuels are great. I mean, yeah. they've got such energy density. Exactly. And they yeah. make such, you know, so the question is, how can we make them from, you know, carbon sources that are old carbon sources? You You're know, so careful. I am careful. And, <laughs> and it packs about 100 times the punch per weight of a battery, which yeah. is a big deal. And that's why we fly airplanes with liquid fuels. You know, Indeed. just the way it works is you can take carbon dioxide and water and zap both of them with electricity, and that'll split the C's, O's, and H's into the building blocks to make methanol or certain variants of jet fuel. And if your source of carbon comes from the atmosphere, it's carbon neutral. Yep. If it is a waste that would have gone into the atmosphere anyway, well, it's carbon reductive, which is... Sounds like but, an insult. Yeah, well, I, I sort of, I think it's better than not because I don't know. If you're a gigawatt coal-fired power plant, just to kind of put this in scale, you're emitting 20,000 tons of CO2 a day, which mm. is a lot of CO2. And now the question is, are you going to not emit that 20,000 tons, which is probably a good option because then you don't need the coal? Are you going to store it, which then makes you a carbon neutral source of energy, which is also good? Or are you going to give that carbon dioxide a second life and let it ultimately end up in the atmosphere? And is there a value of tacking on a technology which can help defray the capture costs and get you along the way in advance toward carbon reductive liquid fuels? Yeah. For my money, if I'm king of the world and am able to say, let's mitigate as much as possible, we need to get to getting that source of carbon out of the atmosphere as soon as possible, even if it doesn't make economic sense. Hmm. This is all dependent on timing because if renewables are going at the speed they are, if they carry on doubling the rate they are, that coal-fired power station will be shutting down in five or six years. I mean, Eon, for instance, they just refit all their carbon coal-fired power plants you know, a few years ago. And I- With capture technology? No, no, just to refit them to go for the next 20 years and mm -hmm. update the, ah. the technology. And I had an inside man inside Eon, and he said, we looked at the figures and we realized we'll never make a profit out of these things because removals are moving so fast. So Eon's now split itself into two companies, one which is the bad bank, which has got all the fossil fuel stuff, and another company which is all renewables. The bad because boys they, who ride they, the Harleys. Because they're, yeah. they're looking at the fossil fuels and going, this is a liability. This stuff is getting less and less profitable. We have to do, you know, do we spend a lot of time saying, let's develop some technologies to capture the carbon from a coal-fired power plant? Or do we say, no, let's take that money and invest it in renewables harder and faster so that, that thing makes no economic sense? And you know, depending on where in the world, there are different arguments for doing one or the other. This is the term stranded assets that we yeah. hear thrown around a lot. Mm -hmm. You're depreciating this asset over 40 years or whatever the life of this plant is. Mm -hmm. And then what do you do if the tech changes on you in that time or you get a carbon tax or something happens yeah. that ruins your business model? What happens to those? But now you're saying companies just through market signals are realizing that they can't compete with renewables and that's just happening through the market. That's a beautiful thing when that happens. It's, it's bad for those companies, at least temporarily. It's, it's a beautiful thing because then you don't have to have the argument about climate change. Like So towns like yes. Georgetown, Central Texas, 60,000 Trump voters, one of the most conservative, reddest towns in America. You know, So the, I'm guessing this is not a place where climate change is big on the agenda. You know, that's not a thing that they're particularly concerned about. The whole town has gone over to renewables. They're right next to the oil fields because it's cheaper. Yeah. And the other great thing about renewables that nobody talks about is that the cost is stable. Dale Ross, who's the mayor of the town, says, I know what my electricity bill is going to be 20 years from now. 
which means that I can invest in confidence for things that previously I wouldn't have been able to. Because one of the problems of the world economy is the oil price keeps going up and down, which makes it hard to predict whether you're an investor or a government or a company doing strategy. If you don't know what the energy price is going to be five years from now, it's hard to think more than five years ahead. And with the oil price, you don't know what it's going to be a month from now, potentially. With renewables, you go, I know exactly what the energy price is going to be. I mean, economists don't agree on much. The collective noun for economists is a disagreement, right? <laughs> but there's a few things they agree on. The one thing they seem to agree on is trade is good. The more we trade with each other, the less we kill each other. This is a good thing. Low energy prices are good because if you reduce the cost of energy, you reduce the cost of everything else, which is good for the economy. And we can afford all sorts of things we couldn't afford previously. You know, And stable energy prices are good. These are the three things they agree on. Because if you have stability, you've got the ability to plan long term. All economists agree on those three things, which is about the only three things they do agree on. Yeah, and the, renewables bring that stuff. The joke I've always heard is uh, if you get five economists in a room, you'll get six opinions. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you say your line from uh, Bastiat. When goods cross borders, soldiers don't. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's it's hard to attack your trading partner without hurting yourself. Yeah, trading uh, uh, It seems like we're doing that right now uh, as Americans. <laughs> these tariffs. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, you're going through a little moment. We are going. Yeah, we're going through a <laughs> but, moment. But, but actually, I mean, this is a more general point in my work about you know lots of liberals up in arms about you know Trump, uh, and then over here lots of liberals up in the arms about Brexit. And it's kind of like, well, there's been a fundamental failure of the government system because what you've been offering the people for the last two hundred years is one of two buttons, more of the same or more of the same slightly differently. And for a lot of people, that isn't working for them anymore. Their house prices are going up. They're getting less and less money. They're seeing their education or their health insurance go through the roof. Their kids' jobs don't look as secure as they'd like them to be. The education system is still treating them like it's the 1950s. You know, so if something like Trump comes along or Brexit vote comes along, and even if you don't like Trump, you might go, well, if the option is more of the same or break the system. This guy looks like he's going to give it a good old kicking. So we have to rethink it probably. You know, a lot of people will pick that. And this is one of these other fundamental problems. You know, we're moving from worlds of an economy of scale, which is what a political party is, to one which must be governed in a much more networked way. And so if Trump and Brexit and what's happening in Catalonia and various other places at the moment are finally a signal that gets the progressive liberals to go, actually, you know, we dicked around with democracy. We could have the World Wide Web since 1989, and our version of democracy is to vote once every four years for two assholes, both of whom we disagree with, from a selection of two or three families. That's not democracy. Democracy should be democratizing things, health, wealth, education, opportunity. It doesn't do that, so it's not democracy. So when you, as the land and the free go, we're protecting democracy. No, you're protecting a facsimile of democracy from the 19th century. The only thing that Trump does is come along, kick that over, and make you think more serious about what a democracy should look like. Maybe that's a good thing. Sorry, that's a bit of a rant. <laughs> I just want to slow clap that. Yeah, we get nervous when more like the mainstream institutions that Americans have have lost some degree of legitimacy. And I imagine probably the same in the yeah, UK, especially when you have like Corbyn or, or uh, Nigel Farage, who are like, you know, pretty big outsiders, I guess you could say, to like more conventional, like the Tories and uh, I, labor. In the US, I think Gallup has been tracking this for like 40 years or so. And we're at an all time low for yeah. Americans' trust in large scale it's, institutions. It's the same, it's the same. Evaporation of trust across all institutions that govern society. And yeah. for good reason. And for very good reason, yeah. because for a large percentage of the population, those institutions aren't delivering. And this doesn't go along left or right lines. This goes along the lines of, are you one of the 10% that kind of works in the system and profits from it, or are the others? So it's not left or right. This is, am I poor or am I getting rich? And now it's just getting worse and worse. So, okay. so it's time for a readjustment. And climate change will be all part of that. Have you uh, read Niall Ferguson's latest? No. Oh, okay. I don't count time to read anything. I'm too busy trying to write books and I have a two-year-old. Oh, oh, God. I mean, you could have just said the second one and we would have understood. Yeah. Uh, his book is the, the Tower in the Square, I believe, but it's about hierarchy versus networks. But. Yeah. I mean, it's inevitable. I mean, the great you know, renewables, again, it's a network solution. It can now, because of the technology, again, it's good, outperform the hierarchies. It used to make sense to get a whole bunch of stuff, stick it in a big power station and burn it. Now it makes no sense. And from a national security sense, it makes no sense because, you know, you want to take out the Eastern Seaboard. Well, you only have three or four targets at the moment. You can yeah. pretty effectively do that. With a renewables-based system, America's much more secure from an energy perspective. In college, I worked at a sustainability think tank research center. Sort of as a joke, one day, one of the professors gave me an assignment to figure out how to take out the Phoenix power grid mm. or like what would be the biggest fear from like a, a terror attack or something like that. And after doing a little bit of research, what we found was that the simplest and most effective method is to take mylar balloons and let them go underneath power lines in a few strategic locations and boom, the whole grid's taken down. Mm. You don't have to go after the heavily fortified and protected power plants. You just 
break the lines in a few places with cheap materials and it's gone. <laughs> That's the weak link, huh? Yeah, this actually happens all the time in California. Like people will be having a birthday party or something like that and they let these balloons go. People always blame Enron, but the balloon yeah. company is, yeah. we're looking at you. Uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> you know, those balloon companies are owned by ISIS, right? Oh, no. <laughs> It's a long con. All about that long game. Strategic investments, right. I'd say. Yeah. So you don't have time to read books, but you do have time to what, calculate them? your lifetime carbon emissions and then pay to offset it. Yeah. And actually, that was when the first time we spoke, that was, I think it was in September when Paul and I and Ross and a few others on our team were competing in a hackathon and talking to customers quote unquote, who might use the Nori product. And it turns out that you fit a category of one certain type, which is an individual buyer who wants to calculate all of his emissions and then do we, something about it. We call it. them suckers. Because right. <laughs> <laughs> they suck the air. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what I meant to say. Yeah, right. they, can you talk to us about that experience? What went well with it? What motivated you to do it? And what as one of the things that I remember you saying is you tried to get others to want to do it too. And yeah. With limited success. Actually, I'm, I'm what, what that was like. doing a lot better now. I did it because it's the right thing to do. If I'm going to predicate my career on trying to make the world a more sustainable place, then how can my life be something that isn't sustainable? How can I have made more of a problem than, than what I've solved? So, you know, and I'm just looking at this technique now for going plastic neutral as well and all this kind of thing. I think it's just... Icon would have no credibility. If I'm going to walk into an investment house and say, you've got to take climate change seriously and here's a way to do it and I'm going to help you. If they turn around and, and I haven't offset my carbon emissions, I haven't offset my family's carbon emissions. If I'm not practicing what I'm preaching, then I'm basically your average consultant, which is saying one thing and doing another. I don't want to be that guy. It's just a personal thing. I don't think I could be a coherent individual talking about the need to deal with climate change if I wasn't doing the bare minimum as far as I can see it, which is offset my own emissions. It's would be an untenable moral position. So how does that work? You plug some numbers into a calculator, you figure out where you flew. Yeah. Yeah, I worked. I mean, the way I did, I mean, because it's very hard to do. So what I do is the World Bank has a fairly good methodology for per capita emissions. So what I do is I go and look at those historically and they were higher in the past and they're slowly dropping. So I think, okay, it's going to add all those up for all the years I've been alive. Okay. That's an average citizen. Okay. I'm not an average citizen because the work I do took quite a lot of travel. I'm all over the place. So I then go and find the most stringent calculator, which includes, for instance, radiative forces and stuff of all the travel I do. I add that in every year as well. And I then add those two figures together and I stick in an extra 20% to make sure that I haven't forgotten anything or whatever. And then I offset that amount. Just for our listeners, you threw out a really important term, which is radiative forcing. And that's because that's basically, that's the greenhouse effect when you have more carbon in the atmosphere. And when you're flying, the planes are emitting carbon dioxide closer to the atmosphere where it stays there. So the basic yeah. formula is you multiply those emissions times two from the total emissions because it, it has more of a force. Is that yeah. about right? Yeah. Depending on what the gas is, where it's released at what time and how long it's been there, you have to add these multipliers to, you know, account for it, you know, because the more, for instance, greenhouse gas there is in the atmosphere, you know, it can encourage more greenhouse gas into the atmosphere. So it has this doubling effect. So. Great. And so you came up with a number for your lifetime yeah. emissions and your family's lifetime emissions. And then you said, okay, now I'm, I'm going to go pay for something. Yeah. What did you pay for? How was, how was that experience? How was the experience? Well, it was really simple. I, you know, made a payment and the money left my bank account and, and then I, you know, was instantly smug at every party I went to from that point on. It's the main benefit, right? Yeah, it's instant smugness. Oh, yeah. But one of the things I do with, with my clients is kind of, let's go and look at the average emissions, say, you know, we're here in the UK, average emissions by the World Bank's method. And again, you can argue with that and you might not say it's higher level, but let's just stick with their figure. I think it's about seven tons now per capita. You can offset seven tons per capita using Stanford trees, which is my preferred offsetter because they're the you know, UN mandated, it's all accounted for very well. They invest in really good projects with the money. You can offset seven tons for 55 pounds, I think. That's 15 pence a day for instant smugness at every point. And <laughs> bragging rights, you know, it's like, you know, if you want to date somebody, you know, it's like, well, you should date me. I'm carbon neutral. <laughs> <laughs> I'll add that to my Tinder profile. Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> so one of the things we've done with quite a lot of my clients is what they've done now is they now offer a better benefit to all of their employees. And the benefit is you carbon emissions as an average as an offset. And I've got loads of companies to do that. So now there are you know, literally tens of thousands of employees out there who are having their average emissions offset. And the companies, there's 14, are going to say, as an employee, I see that as a real benefit. It's like, I feel good about that. I feel good that my company takes it seriously and is helping me offset my emissions. And well, now you want to expand that. Well, how many family members have you got? And you want to add that as an extra benefit. If every company offset the average emissions of all of their employees, that go a long way to dealing with some of the problem. Absolutely. And what you're describing is a voluntary market, which is the exact market that we're trying to enter into. Mm. We're distinguishing ourselves by saying 
many of the offset projects that are sold, Stanford Trees, and obviously part of the clean development mechanism with the UN and are funding really important projects and are oftentimes going above and beyond and funding co-benefits. So you can get not only smug, but warm and fuzzy about feeling that you're employing women and girls and yep. putting up a new school somewhere and kind of all of those costs. Now, we agree that that's good and we like co-benefits, but you're paying for more than just negating the emission. You're paying for driving an important project. And so that that brings up a question is if we're really just talking about canceling out the emission mm -hmm. in the most efficient way possible. And this is kind of on the air feedback to Nori that we'd like, yeah. because that's all we're doing. We're able to track co-benefits and we obviously want them to happen. And we're picking things that will naturally evolve good yeah. co-benefits, but all you're getting paid for is putting the carbon away. If you want to sell anything, you've got to sell a good story. Just offsetting the emissions is not something you can talk about very well. But if you say, by the way, as well as doing this, this conservation project is going through the roof. You've lifted this village out of poverty because now we'll be able to help them invest in you know, agroecology with proven soil carbon benefits or whatever. You know, people do not move because they've been convinced intellectually. Unless you move the heart, the rest of you won't move at all. And so all storytelling is about moving the heart. And then when you've moved the heart, the brain will follow. Ross and I are big fans of Jonathan Haidt. Do you know him? No, I've not met him. Well, I know his brother, Jonathan Shallow. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you had to try so hard for that joke. It's too hard. You hear me, did you hear me for reaching for it? I'm sorry about that. Apologies. Of height? <laughs> Depp? Jonathan Depp would have yeah, been. Johnny Depp. Yeah, I was trying to think Jonathan Johnny Depp. Sure. Johnny Depp. Yeah. Johnny Depp. <laughs> <laughs> Missed opportunity. We're better comics. That's just how it goes. We crowdsourced it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, he's a moral psychology researcher. He has a book that came out in 2014 called The Righteous Mind, mm -hmm. Why Good People Are Divided on Issues of Politics and Religion. And it, he has something like 25, 30 years of empirical research behind this. And what he's found is that there tend to be six different categories of values that all people across all cultures believe in in some level. And from an American political perspective, at least, there are six of them. So they are caring, fairness, liberty, authority, sanctity. And every single time I tell this story, I forget what the sixth one is. Um, Forgetting is this. I never lived in the first place. Right, so, yeah. right. <laughs> Conservatives in America tend to care about all six of these roughly equally. They hold them in equal esteem. Liberals tend to care about caring and fairness, and libertarians tend to care about liberty and fairness. Mm -hmm. Basically, all of our disagreements boil down to these things. It's actually also one of the reasons why we see Republicans who are the party of conservatives in the US, they tend to dominate all levels of government, state and local levels, as well as controlling Congress and the presidency right now. It's because they can make emotional appeals on all six of these different values, whereas mm -hmm. Democrats can only make appeals to two of them. Mm -hmm. And these things, these values, they're so innate and inherent to our being that we oftentimes, and this is where the empirical research comes in, we oftentimes make moral decisions before we've even had enough time neurologically yeah. to consider them. Yeah. Height uses the metaphor of a rider on an elephant in mm -hmm. that the elephant is our values and our brain is the rider. And you can sort of steer the elephant, but it's also a very large animal and it's yeah. going to do what it wants to do. I mean, I it's if you David want, Hume idea. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you want to see somebody who's completely prejudiced, look in the mirror. That's what I always say. You know, yeah. it's kind of like, no, know, we're, we're evolved. We're like way above that. <laughs> you, you know, you, we have a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have a podcast. We're smart. We're <laughs> you know, so smart. But it's, it's true. And, and we're all governed by our emotions first. And, and the brain does the PR for what the heart has already decided. That's not me saying that we shouldn't have the facts. Once the heart has decided... You want all the facts to back it up, especially yes. if you're going to a room full of investors because you want to feel uncomfortable. But unless you can tell a compelling story about the truth, which is what I've bent my life to doing, as I believe the truth to be, and I believe this to be truths about climate change and equality and whatever, you never get anywhere. One of the things about politics is that when you say that about the difference between conservatives and, and liberals is the thing I find in my work all the time is that people divided by politics, divided by whether they see themselves as left or right or whatever, are soon united around a project. You give them something to build together. Yeah. And they stop arguing about whether they like Trump or Clinton and they start building a school. And guess what? They find out they agree on all those six yeah. things and actually they have almost zero disagreements about where the streetlight needs to be or how many kids need to be in this class or you know where they should cite the waterhole or whatever it is. I often like to say that if you describe it accurately enough, we all more or less want the same outcomes yeah. and the disagreements are around the means of achieving those outcomes and well, we, have these, but we don't discuss them that we way. We have these rather ridiculous things called political parties whose job right. is just to divide us around the things we agree on. Yeah. It's so funny to get into a team and yell at people, though. Yeah. That, I think, is the most human thing of all. 
Yeah, but do that, you know, on the sports field. Don't do it with your legislature. Don't yes. do it when you're running the government. Okay, fucking grow up. Yeah, that is the point of sports. When I was younger in college, I thought I was sort of more intellectually evolved and I stopped following sports. I had been a, an athlete growing up and really liked following my different sports teams and so on. And then I realized that there was this like hole missing in me. And in my later 20s, I went back to and I sort of religiously follow hockey now. And it serves that purpose for me. It's a very low stakes competition and tribalism. That's just good fun. Yeah. You know, you need to release that. But, you know, the idea that we still run our government based on the idea of whether, you know, if one team gets slightly more people in one room than another, and then they decide what happens and one team wins and one team loses. It's not a grown up way of doing stuff. It's just ridiculous. And this is why, you know, liberals complaining about, you know, as I said, Trump and Brexit and whatever. It's like, well, when you were in government, when the hell did you get around to creating a proper, inclusive, networked system of governance that's fit for this century and speaks to everybody's values rather than the ones that you particularly like? Gauntlet thrown. Yeah, so <laughs> you've you've now used the word networked twice. And I'm sorry. No, that that's okay. I'm, if I use it three times, I'll be able to link them all together. Yeah, it's like Beetlejuice. <laughs> but what? It's obviously important. What does it, it? What does it mean? What does it mean to be a networked society? All these terms have caveats, but in the past, what happened was we ran things on hierarchies. Somebody got enough power or we moved enough stuff into one place. Teaching is a hierarchy. You get all the students into one room, you stick a teacher in front of them and you teach at them. It's a great way to teach. It's a very inefficient way to learn. And to control a population. <clears throat> yeah. Power is a great example. You know, the most efficient way to do things was get a bunch of coal or oil or whatever and burn it in one central place and then send that out to people. Now, a networks approach goes actually using new technologies or new ways of thinking. We can now outperform that old system. So it's not like saying we're doing it differently for the sake of it. It's like, actually, we've got so much solar energy hitting the planet's surface that if we could capture it where it was hitting it in a distributed fashion, we wouldn't need to dig into the ground or whatever. Now, it used to be the technology wasn't good enough for us to do that. And just around about now, it is getting good enough. So now a network solution outperforms a, a hierarchical one. And it's not the case that this will happen in all industries. I'm sure there'll be you know, a good few industries will realize, you know, in 20 years time, actually, this is probably the best way to do this. It's probably, yeah, straight on hierarchy. You need somebody to tell you what to do. Brain surgery. I'm not suggesting that's going to be a networked kind of solution. I think you probably need a surgeon who knows what he's doing, for instance. But, you know, marketing, running the government, education, these, I think, will be network solutions. Just because the technology is now allowing the networks to outperform the, the previous technology, which was all based around centralized power. I don't know if it's come up on the podcast before, but there's an S-curve where production used to be done by artisans and it was all like cottage industries that were truly in cottages, just looked like a family and, and the father and the son would make uh, baskets or something like that. And then technology got better enough where we could truly centralize because that was decentralized and then assembly lines became a thing. And then just now the technology is coming around where production could become decentralized again with 3D printers and mm -hmm. things such as that. And so Etsy stores. And Etsy and stuff like that. And we, we might be seeing decentralization just through the way the material economy actually well, I mean, works. The, the stuff you're, you guys are doing with blockchain, blockchain at the moment hasn't reached peak hype. I mean, blockchain is going to save climate change and improve your relationship and make you better in bed. And, and don't underestimate <laughs> the levels of hype blockchain can achieve. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think it could go higher. You yeah. think it can go higher? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, but what it can do is, is a networked way of doing proof, essentially. And we used to do proof actually via a hierarchical system called trust, which is I give it to a third party like a lawyer or a bank and I trust them enough to, that when they do this transaction for me, they're verifying all that stuff. That's a hierarchy, okay? Whereas the blockchain, because of the way it works, is a network solution. And in many cases, if we get it right and we use the right technology, it may turn out that's a much more efficient, transparent, quicker way of doing stuff and removes a lot of friction from the transactions we do with each other. In some cases, it just won't work. It just won't work because it won't be the solution we need. You'll find out in lots of applications, actually, I, it's the trust that's a really important thing. The fact I do trust this person and do know this person is the key thing. and I need to keep that. But say in transactional stuff, you know, cryptocurrency, whatever, blah, 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 I don't need the bank. Yeah, I think, but uh, I still have to trust the software. That's the thing that people don't talk about. I still have to trust the software. And I'm a pretty good judge. For, I would like to think of, you know, if I hire a lawyer you know, and I've worked with them for a while, I like to think, I, know I, could, I trust this girl. Okay. She's good. I know what she's doing. You know, I know I'm not a very great software. I'm not a great software auditor. I don't know whether that blockchain system is any good or not because I don't know. That is a sort of weird result of open source software movements. I mean, ultimately, blockchains, especially proof of work blockchains, come down to do you trust that? math works? Mm. And the answer should be yes. But in practice, not everyone who uses these software applications is qualified enough to be able to evaluate that on their own level. 
So the solution that people always put forth since the open source software movement began was we open the source code of all of this so that people can do that. But that more or less becomes a situation where you're trusting proxies, people who are doing the audits and saying like, I believe that this person is qualified enough to evaluate this and they say it's good. So I'm going to go with it. Yeah. Yeah. There's still a trusted element. The, the term for this is trustless, but of course you have to trust the software too. It's, it's referring to- a, I hate a, that term. Yeah. It's, tru- uh, it's trustful. Yeah, but you don't have to trust a, a centralized institution yeah. or a person. But of course there are applications where you probably want that as well. But there's a tendency now to try to stick everything on the blockchain. And, and we've made fun of it a few times too. There are many things that should not be here. Well, I think you still want to trust institutions, but it, again, it's what I was saying. You want to trust these proxies, but you can have multiple proxies. Whereas right now we're dependent on single centralized institutions for various trust factors and who watches the watchman. But in this open source movement, you can have multiple different auditing groups that are auditing the same particular project and they can give out the same or different reports. And then you start to see where the disagreements are between them and they're incentivized to continue to provide more and better information. So we're still trusting institutions, but we're doing so in a way that produces better results for society. We hope. Yes. (laughs) But there's a pretty long track record of of this way of operating being around. Like blockchains are new since 2008, but open source software has been around since the beginning of computing. Yeah. Yeah. And there are certain things that, as I say, it will become, yeah, of course, this is a blockchain open source solution. And this one over here, no, actually, I still need my lawyer. (laughs) Yeah. And we'll, we'll find that out over the next 20 years. You have barristers on the blockchain. I got to go to the patent office. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, I think we're kind of getting to bring this back to Nori and a question that you asked before we started recording, which is central to Nori, which is, well, how do you verify carbon removal activity? Let me ask that again. How do you verify carbon removal activity? <laughs> I put the words in your mouth, didn't I? <laughs> I'm actually tied to a chair listener and I'm being shown cards. <laughs> and, and, Hush. Uh, my, my wife is held at gunpoint in the, in the room next door. <laughs> Help. <laughs> so we've brought this up. On no, multiple. tell me, how do you verify? <laughs> well, now I won't answer. No, well, we, brought, we have brought this up on past podcasts, but it keeps evolving. And what it comes down to is it depends by methodology by methodology. So when I say methodology, that's what are the accounting pra- practices that relate to the specific way we're taking CO2 out of the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And when you do certain things, it is possible to create a model that creates dynamic carbon removal baselines. So let's take an example, which is the first methodology we're going with, which is putting carbon dioxide in soils. Mm -hmm. So a farmer can switch from planting monocultures using intense tillage and using a lot of fertilizer to not using as much fertilizer, maybe none at all. And instead of that, using cover crops, rotating their crops and using no-till agriculture. Mm -hmm. If we know where that farmer is and we know a soil reference core, and so basically we know what type of soil it is, it's possible to create a model to say, do these things, and I know you'll have X amount of carbon put into the soil. And these are models that are getting improved frequently with so better and better you, data. You're and working so, with uh, Peter Bick at ASU then on that, I'm guessing. We know he, he's the guy who's well because there's a lot of argument about how much carbon goes into which soils at which point, and the science is not in on that. It's not in on that, and actually, what that generates for this methodology are carbon removal certificates, which then need to be ground truthed with real data. So we use practices that are verified by performances. So how does that work? You now have done these practices as a farmer and you get a whole bunch of carbon removal certificates and then you take those carbon removal certificates to the Nori marketplace and you sell them. When you sell them, you will get paid with Nori tokens when they reach the top of the queue, at which point those carbon removal certificates are immediately retired and the Nori tokens are transferred to your account. They go in two flavors. One are Nori tokens, which are immediately tradable. And the second is in a restricted account which is released in a tiered structure as more data comes through the system and we have more certainty that there's carbon in the soil and then they get released. And that kind of is a very high level. But what that enables is the measurement devices, the Internet of Things like ways to basically drive down the cost of verification. We start very much like what the traditional carbon offset markets do in order to have a verifier basically operate, but as quickly as possible, we're moving to relying on machines and not humans to do a lot of these transactions. Yeah. And, you know, we'd hope that 20 years from now, every farm knows exactly what its soil carbon is because it's reporting back to some sort of dashboard and we know where, I mean, moving the grasslands 
back to proper grazing is one of the biggest opportunities we have for taking carbon out of the atmosphere. It's five what, billion acres of that stuff that's been badly managed at the moment. And it's better meat too. Yeah. It tastes better. Yeah. I mean, half the carbon in the atmosphere has come from the soil. People don't realize that. It's healthier for you too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also, if we carry on the level of soil erosion we've got, we've got 60 harvests left. So this is where we have to get the soil turned back on ASAP. Yeah, I just read uh, Dirt, The Erosion of Civilizations yeah. by Dave Montgomery. Yeah, we've had him on the podcast too. I never realized how important uh, soil was to the civilizational uh, sine wave. I guess that's what I meant earlier instead of Esker. That's a good time to correct myself there. It was a sine wave. It comes back down. There's a, um, there's a Chinese proverb, which is something like man for all his pretensions of you know sophistication and only survives due to the fact that we have six inches of topsoil and it rains. <laughs> and we're eroding the soil like crazy at the moment. So, you know, I mean, it costs the U.S. economy $44 billion a year in soil erosion costs because the soil gets less fertile. You know, it's 17 tons per hectare per year at the moment. That's why we're so excited about regenerative agriculture. And uh, what you're talking about with renewables becoming cheaper, the conflict over climate change and the economy, it basically disappears too. If you can make money on it or it's cheaper as a consumer, people don't need to fight. Oh, I want to drive my, my Hummer around or whatever. They're just, they're hitting the pocketbook and they're happy about it. And I think that same thing is going to happen with agriculture here too. We're hoping to speed it along, but it's already happening. Do we have any idea how many people are practicing right now in the U.S.? It's about 1% of farmland. Wow. So there's a lot to do still, but... um, And and there's an equivalence of you moving over to agroecology and crops as well. That's been proven massively to, you know... A, move people out of poverty because now they can use a technology that doesn't cost anything to double or triple their yields, which means they're meeting the, the needs of the market, but they're sticking loads more carbon back into the soil because they're using these methods that naturally increase fertility over time rather than trying to stick loads of fertilizer and pesticides into these monocrops that, you know, work for a short period and then destroy the ecosystem, you know, over time. It's great. It's all carrot, it's no stick. It's a good way to go. Yeah. Unless, of course, you're a person who sells fertilizer. Yeah. That, that or is... you're a person who's been selling the machinery that supports uh, monocultures, you know, that I mean, and that there was a very powerful interest and the status quo is very well funded and it's very difficult to get somebody to understand something when their salary depends on them not understanding it. And unfortunately, those are the people with all the money at the moment, which is why moving the investors to start thinking about, okay, will we be investing in agro? ecology rather than fertilizer sales is really important. I've just been working with a private bank in the UK, which is, you know, it's where the super rich go. And we're starting to work with them on going, you know, they're talking about philanthropy and we're going, philanthropies are all really very well and nice, but actually philanthropies doesn't mean shit unless you start to invest your money properly. And how, so, did, so how did the Rothschilds take that? Well, it wasn't. <laughs> it's not. It's, I'm dead now. Uh, There's no, a it, red dot on your head. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it wasn't then, but they're taking it surprisingly well. I think we're reaching a tipping point, certainly in the way that these stories are getting across now. They've reached the money. And when you reach the money, everything else follows. There's a great line in Game of Thrones. I think Tyrion says it. So you won't have a revolution without the rich. Good luck. So when the rich get it, and they are slowly, not enough of them, but enough that they are the cool ones, the leaders now, I think you know we've got a rapid transition over the next sort of 10 or 15 years where the money starts to get it. Which we covered. This has felt a bit like we all had a pint together down at the pub, but uh, if only we had, that would have been so much more fun than this. Yeah, tea. He should have just gone right for <laughs> yeah, right for the lager. Got, I should have got the scotch out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is there something else that we really should cover? You want to tell us about, or we wanted to ask about? No, he's saying no. Did I just kill the whole vibe? All the natural <laughs> organic progression of the conversation? No, I think that was quite nice. Yeah. Don't you? I enjoyed it. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. So many dovetails. We just went all over the place with all of our interests. Can I put my clothes back on now? <laughs> <laughs> I think we all should. Yeah. On that note. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. <laughs> Thank you.